Hear the word of God from Paul's letter to the Galatian church. It's chapter one. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Hope you're well this morning. Always good to be, good to be together to worship our God. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Happy Father's Day, happy Father's Day, everyone. So glad you're worshiping together with us. Lifeway did a study recently on church attendance during the holidays. And they asked a the question, which holidays had the most church attendance and which had the least? All right, it's a quick question. Number one, which holiday has the most church attendance? Easter, correct. Number two? Christmas, correct. Number three? Mother's Day is correct. Mother's Day is the third most attended holiday weekend of church, Mother's Day. All right, next question, you ready? 
probably easy one, but out of 4th of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, all these other holidays, what's the least attended? Father's Day. Father's Day is the least attended church holiday, while Mother's, after it's Christmas and Easter, is the most attended. Why is that? I'll give you one possible reason. It is during the summertime. There's one excuse. The Father's Day is during June, so it is during the wintertime, or summertime, where people are on vacations. Any other reasons? Any thoughts? It's just throw it out there. They're out fishing? <laughs> golfing? Fishing, golfing? Then why is Mother's Day the, so well attended? You go to lunch afterwards? Anybody else? Why is Mother's Day so well attended? Moms make their kids go to church. They like the picture, dressed up cute, moms with the families. Does it say something? I just want to throw this out there. Does it say something about the family unit that it seems to be that moms care more about the families being together as their special day while fathers want to be off from the family? Maybe. I'm not making any broad strokes here. I just want to throw the maybes out there. Can I tell you something? At Waypoint Church, historically, we've not actually had a drop-off on Father's Day. So I'm grateful for that. At my old church, I, tr- I kid you not, this is true, at my old church, we would expect a 60% drop on Father's Day when I was uh, about 10 years ago at the old church I used to be at. So it was a crazy drop on Father's Day. Once again, it was also the start of summer, but that's a large drop. There were a lot of golfers at that church. <laughs> I'm thankful that at this church we don't, have, don't see that kind of drop, but... I want to say that not to just pat ourselves in the back. I don't want to say that to be like, good job, guys. But I also want to say that as a word of warning to us as a church. I don't, I think it's dangerous that society and culture right now in America kind of gives this impression, this thought. I watch TV, the fathers on TV that I see are often fathers who don't value being a family together, who don't value, or maybe are, the, are not the sources of wanting to come together as a family, or do things as a family, or often are at times kind of the oblivious one, disconnected from the family. I just want to say this, just because today's Father's Day, I just want to say a word to the fathers. God, if you're a father and you're in a family, God has given you a responsibility. He's given you a blessing He's called you to a responsibility that is huge. To raise up children in the Lord. To raise up children in the Lord. Please take it seriously. Please take it seriously. There's a study, another study done, this one by Barna. And so I don't know the, I'm kind of messed up some of the exact numbers, but the gist you'll get. The study done by Barna is that if a mother without a father, brings their children to church, uh, it's only about one-third of them will stay remaining in the church. But if a father without a mother brings their children to church, two-thirds will stay in the church. Statistically speaking, if a father is consistently in the church with their children, the statistical chance of that child remaining in the church is double to triple higher than if it was just a mother. That's just statistics based on our society and our culture. I'm not saying why. I'm just saying that is just the statistics. So a word to the fathers. Thank you for being here. 
And I'm not saying that just because, yeah, I like seeing you guys here in church on Sunday morning. I do. I think you guys are awesome. But you're making an intentional investment into your children's lives, into the lives of your family. And believe me when I say it is so important. So, as a church, we commit to praying for our families. We commit to praying for our fathers and our mothers and our children. We're doing this thing together. And so one thing I do want to say is that if you feel alone, if you're struggling, if the pressure is too much for you and it's hard, or you don't know what to do, you're not alone here. Please reach out to somebody. Reach out to me. Reach out to the other pastors, to the elders. We want to do this thing called life together. Amen? That was just a side little note, but I wanted to get there. We're starting a brand new book today, but we're still in the genre of Paul's epistles, so we're still in Paul's epistles, but we're looking at a different one today. We're looking at the book of Galatians. And Paul wrote this incredible, rich, and powerful letter to the, book of Galatia, uh, to the Galatian church. Martin Luther actually called this book his wife's name because he would say he was so married to it. You know, he actually called it by his wife's name. I thought that was funny. <laughs> kind of weird. The main thing commentaries have noticed about this early section in this book is that Paul begins with a salutation. In all the ancient letters and the Greek letters, you can see in all of Paul's letters, actually, as well in the Bible, there's this introduction. It would go, Paul, an apostle. Then it would go to the addressee, to the churches of so-and-so. Then there's a salutation, grace and peace to you from God the Father. Then there's always a thanksgiving. I thank God for you always. I thank God what I think of you. I'm thankful for this or that, or the things we've heard about you. Always a thanksgiving, but not here. Did you guys notice that? But not in the book of Galatians. Commentators have noticed that there's no word of thanksgiving in the beginning of the book of Galatians. There's no word of thanksgiving actually anywhere in Galatians. Paul jumps right in. There's no niceties here. Paul's like, okay, I said hi, I said who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say anything nice. I got something I need to tell you. By the standards of his time, Paul sounds really harsh here. He's going straight to the point. He's trying to communicate something with such passion and fervor. He's like a distressed father yelling out to his child. When me and my boys, when we would go swimming, and before the boys knew how to swim very well, and they don't really know how to swim that well anyway, but even before when they don't know how to swim well, if I saw one of them running to the deep end, I'm not being like, boys, I'm so thankful that you're my boys, and we're out swimming today, but please stay away from the deep end. No, I'm saying, boys, get back here. Don't run to the deep end. God, I don't want them to fall onto the deep end. I'm stern, I'm loud, I'm harsh, I yell. That's too deep for you kids, get back. And this is what Paul's doing here at the very beginning of the book of Galatians. He's shouting out with a protective heart. He's saying, don't go astray. Don't miss it, don't, don't be led astray from the real gospel from what has brought you to this point. Let's remember the context here. Paul's a church planter. And after his conversion, he goes on these missionary journeys where he's planting churches in Macedonia and Galatia and Asia and Achaia, all these different places. He's planting churches, investing his life into these people. And after planting these churches, Paul starts writing letters of encouragement, sometimes of rebuke, sometimes of instruction to all the churches he spent time with that he's planted. Galatians, many believe, is probably one of the first letters that he wrote. It was written to a group of churches in the southern region of Galatia, and this is a region that Paul visited once or twice during his first missionary journey. He preached the gospel there, established several churches there. 
And this letter was initially sent to one church, but it was meant to be read to the congregation and then passed on to read to other congregations in that region. Now, since his visit there, something's happened. False teachers arrived, known as Judaizers, came through the area and taught a message that was contrary to the one Paul preached. They called into question Paul's apostolic authority and taught that Galatians, the Galatians are a, a different gospel. Primarily their message was that faith in Christ was only the beginning. It was just the start of becoming a Christian. You don't, if you really wanted to become a Christian, you had to have faith in Christ and you needed to be circumcised. You need to have faith in Christ and you needed to follow all the ceremonial laws that existed. You needed to become Jewish. Fundamentally, this letter is about the basis for our relationship with God. The Galatians began to rely upon their ceremonial obedience, especially their circumcision. That's how, what they started relying on. That's what they were being taught as saying, what makes you secure and stand before God in salvation is that I obey the Jewish laws. But the reality is, all of us are tempted to base our relationship with God on what we do rather than what Christ has done. Does that make sense? The reality is, yes, these people are doing it, but often that's a temptation for all of us. All of us are tempted to base our relationship with God, our standing before God, on what we do rather than what Christ has done, especially the ones who are really good at getting things done. Right? I would say that's a lot of you guys. A lot of you people here at Waypoint, you're good at getting things done. Some of you are good at following the rules. You accomplish a lot. You're achievers. And so often, that's innate in you. You base a lot of your standing before God, or sometimes the temptation exists, to base your standing before God on what can I get done rather than what Christ has done. We'll feel condemned and unworthy of God's love when we fall into sin. But we feel justified and great when we've gone to church or had our daily devotion. Am I right? Not bad if you're like, oh, I, I kind of feel that. Galatians is a strong rebuke of making the gospel about our works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anything else is not the gospel. Do you hear that? Now, mind you, this is not a hear me talk when I say this. This is not contradicting other parts of the Bible where it talks about works. It talks about faith without works is dead. It talks about you have to work out your salvation if you're troubling. It doesn't contradict those statements. Do you hear me? They all work together in this beautiful mystery of the gospel. But the truth is, by grace alone, not by anything you did, but by the work of Christ, can you perform the, the works of life that God calls to affirm what you've happened in your heart. In verses 6 and 7 alone, the word gospel is used five times. So this morning, I want us to consider three aspects of the gospel as found in these verses. And I got these three aspects from a pastor friend of mine named Pastor Brad. I don't know why I told you his name, but I just felt like I should, because I got these aspects from him. So, number one, the source of the gospel, two, the heart of the gospel, and three, the exclusivity of the gospel. So those are three aspects of the gospel I want us to look at. That should be on the screen, but maybe it's not. There it is. Yes. Technology. The source of the gospel. Paul's apostleship comes from God, not man. He makes that very clear from the very beginning. The only reason Paul would need to state this is because at least some of the Galatians were questioning his authority. Why should we agree with Paul? These other guys are coming. These Judaizers are coming. And they're saying, uh, Jesus is good and all, but you need to add all this other stuff to it. And then they're like, do we believe Paul or do we believe these people? And Paul is just explaining himself. He's saying, this is who I am. 
This is my conversion story. You know me. I lived amongst you. My authority didn't come from me. I didn't make this up. God gave it to me. You can read about Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter 9. And, but originally, you guys, you guys know the story of Paul, right? Originally named Saul. He's on his way to Damascus. He was, he was breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. He was a guy that was cheering everybody on when Stephen was being stoned. He was a dreadful enemy of the followers of Jesus. He was hated. He was feared. He was zealous in his persecution of Christians. And in the middle of this persecution, in the middle of his, 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 his kind of campaign against Christians, Jesus appears to him in a flash of blinding light. He instructs him to go to Damascus, and a man named Ananias heals his blindness. He spends some time there among the disciples, and immediately he starts proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, it says. So Saul went from being one of the most ardent persecutors of the church to the apostle that we know, commissioned by Christ. And Paul wanted everyone to know that. I, mean, I want you guys to think about this for a second. I, I mean, really grasp it. The man most passionate against Jesus, zealous in his persecution, wanting to see Christians literally stoned to death. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes back and says, oh, 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 I was wrong. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Out of nowhere, he preaches at risk of his own death, his own captivity, his own punishment. What in the world would you be thinking? Right? That should be flooring everybody. He's like, man, that's the guy? Something miraculous must have happened here. Something beyond words, power beyond power. Something huge happened to see this guy's life tra change and transform like that. He must have met God. How powerful is the gospel? And over and over again, Paul is saying, hey, my source is not me alone. This is, if it was up to me, I would have been persecuting the church still. He's saying my source is Jesus Christ. Guys, I want you to hear this. The source of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. It is the grace of Christ that provides the good news and hope that we have. Verse 7, it says, the gospel of Christ. The source of the good news of the whole meta-narrative of the Bible is Jesus. When I was uh, in youth group, my youth minister taught me an acronym that I still remember to this day. I still use it to this day. It's amazing how acronyms can help you remember meanings, right? You guys, can any think of any acronyms that help you remember a meaning to a word? Can you guys give me an example? I'll give you one. YOLO. Is that one, right? You only live once. Right? Anybody else know of any acronyms like that that you can think of? Nobody? ASAP, right? As soon as possible. Anything else? You guys are struggling with this, huh? LOL. I like that. How about, you guys ever heard, uh, you guys know what uh, SCUBA stands for? Say that again. Do you guys know that? Scuba? Self-contained? How many learned that for the first time right now? Yes, you're welcome. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, scuba. I learned that when I was getting ready for this sermon. <laughs> it's true. NASA? Anybody know what NASA stands for? National Aeronautics and Space Administration. NASA. I, I didn't know that either. I was like, man, this is informational, writing a sermon. You learn so much. Right? 
Well, here's one of my favorites, and I learned when I was in youth group. As I always, I asked my youth minister, what does the word grace really mean as we understand it as Christians? What does grace mean? It's a tough concept. And this is what he taught me. He said, God's riches at Christ's expense. Let's put that on the screen if you, if you can. Please, yes. Do you see the G-R-A-C-E there? It's cheesy, I know, but you'll remember this. God's riches at Christ's expense. So I was in high school in youth group, and I was taught that by my youth minister, and I still remember this, and I still turn to this. God's riches at Christ's expense. The source of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He gives us God's riches at Christ's expense. At his expense, he paid the price. He paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Guys, the source of the gospel, the source of the good news is Jesus. He purchased what is unpayable for us. He purchased it and he gives it to us as a free gift. So that we can receive all the inheritance and the riches of God's blessings are now ours because of Christ. He's the source of our gospel. He's, what the, he's the good news. He's what it all points to. This big story, guys, the gospel is not just what this moment of the four gospel books says. It's a big story of a good God who pursues humanity that broke away from him and then of, a, of a savior that came and paid the price that we couldn't pay, who's called a church onto himself that will advance his kingdom and that will make all things new. That's the gospel. And it's all about Jesus. Do you hear that? The greatest testimony of Jesus, I love this too, is, is this a changed life. This is what happened with Saul. They all knew that something miraculous happened, that Paul must have seen Jesus. Jesus must have been the source because that kind of change doesn't happen naturally. That kind of change doesn't happen just by will. That kind of change doesn't happen because you choose to, because no one would choose to live like Paul. Paul literally says elsewhere in one of his letters, he says, if Christ wasn't real, then I should be most pitied amongst men. If eternal life wasn't real, I should be pitied because I've been beaten and bruised and attacked and persecuted and all this kind of stuff. I do this because he's real and I'm going after everything that he has in store for me. Did grace change your life? And we show the beauty of Jesus through the way our lives have changed. Number two, the heart of the gospel. Paul greets his reader with this common phrase. He says in verse three, he says, grace and peace. Now, grace was the kind of typical Greek greeting, while peace was a Hebrew greeting. You would say grace for the Greek people, and then peace, shalom, would be how you greet the Hebrew people. His greeting has theological implications for the unity of the church. I love this. It brings two communities together. Grace and peace is also short for the gospel that Paul preached. The gospel is unmerited, unearned, loving kindness of God. Once again, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we receive, grace. When we receive that grace, we're able to rest in the reconciliation that it brings with God and one another. Grace is the root of our salvation and peace is the fruit. And the problem is, if we adopt a distorted grace, we, have, we will not find true peace. 
to add something to grace is to subtract something from the gospel. In other words, guys, if you truly do what the Judaizers are saying, that if you have to say it's, it's belief in Jesus, it's salvation, it's grace, but then you have to add all these other stipulations to it, then can you really ever find true peace? Have you ever really done enough? Right? That's the problem with most religions in the world, isn't it? Is that there's this kind of, religions kind of have this kind of weighing effect. It's like, did I do enough? Was I a good enough person? Well, by whose standards? How much good do I need to do versus how much bad? Right? You have this kind of effect, and you can never stand secure. You can never know, did I do enough? Did I act enough? Did I do the bad thing at the wrong moment? Or how bad was the thing that I did? Does it all say that all the good that I did? How good was the good thing that I did? And you ask all these questions, and you're stuck in this kind of religious conundrum, and you're stuck here being like, am I ever good enough? Can I truly have peace? But in the gospel, if you truly understand it well, it has nothing to do with how good or how bad you are. It has everything to do with what Jesus did, that you can know peace. How refreshing is that? How comforting is that? That we can actually say, wow, I can truly believe with all my heart, stand here and say to you with confidence that I'm a known child of God and I'm beloved and I know my future. I don't have to just do that extra good deed. I don't have to avoid that one extra bad thing. But on Christ alone, I stand. That's peace. That is peace. That's the heart of the gospel. In verse 4, we start learning about three important truths about the nature of salvation. Is that one, we learn that Christ died for our sins. That's what it means when he says he gave himself. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he says in the Lord's Supper, this is my body given for you. Christ gave himself for our sins. The good news of the gospel is he did what we, he gave. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. He died in our place. He ransomed us. He won the battle for us. He was our captain. I actually knew this. I, I saw this other, one time when I was in high school. And I saw a phrase where Jesus was called a captain of our salvation. And I thought that was the cheesiest thing in the world. A captain of our salvation. Sounds like a superhero name. But when you think about what that means, it literally means he was our champion. He's our representative. He goes forth before us like in a battle. If there's a battle to be fought, and you're like, send us your best fighter. Send us your best warrior. And we're like, all right, we'll send this guy. We'll send Jesus. And you lean back, oh, Jesus is going to fight? Sweet. We don't have to fight. We just won. That's the level of confidence we have when he says he's a captain of our salvation. The battle is won. He wins every time. We have peace. Two, it says Christ delivers us from the present evil age. That's the nature of our salvation. He delivers us from the current evil, present evil age. John Stott says Christ's death on the cross occurred once and it impacts all past, present, and future times. All past, present, future times. His death was once good for all. His cross is good for our past, our present, and our future. We're not bound to the sins of our culture and our time. He delivers us and he sets us apart. And through the nature of our salvation is Christ died according to the will of his Father. The will of the Father and Son were never at odds. Christ gave himself to deliver us according to the will of his Father. And I want you to get that. On Father's Day in particular, I want you to get that. That it was the will of the Father that sent Christ to die. That's a hard thing to even hear as a father myself. Because the idea of my son dying for Anyone is ridiculous. 
but it was the will of the Father, his plan. And so Paul, as he's writing this, gets so caught up in describing the content of the gospel that he concludes his greeting with a doxology here in verse 5. And this is the only time that Paul actually has a doxology in, in the greeting. He's so caught up with the truth of the gospel that he's following it up with praise. It's like just being so filled with joy that you just have to sing about it. And I love how Paul does that, not just here, but elsewhere in the Bible. Paul's just writing, and as he's writing, it's almost like you can hear his thoughts. He's like, man, here's the gospel, good news. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, this is so good. Praise God, our King, our Father. I love how that happens, how he erupts into enjoyment and into praise. I love it. It's when my son, he just can't sometimes contain his emotions. He doesn't know how to hold it. He doesn't know how to act. So when he starts feeling overcome with like emotions so much, he just starts shaking and he's like happy feeding and shuffling. And I just love that so much because I can just tell he's like so excited. I tell him, hey son, you want to go see, you want to see grandma? He's like, yeah. He's so pumped. And here's Paul, this is like, I feel like this is Paul's expression. He's so pumped, he's so moved, he's so empowered, he's so at peace by the gospel that he just can't, he's shaking, he's, he's praising, his feet are shuffling, he's dancing, and he's saying, praise God. My people, when is the last time you were so overwhelmed by the gospel? When was the last time that it moved you to express yourself in such praise and blessing and thanksgiving that you just had to dance, you had to shuffle your feet, you had to sing, you had to shout, you had to tell somebody? You had to express it. The gospel should never become old news. It's good news that never becomes old news. And we'd never grow past the gospel. We just dive deeper into the majesty and depths of it. Do you hear me? A third point, third aspect of the gospel is I want to hear, I want you to see the exclusivity of the gospel. Paul's urgency is evident. This letter skips Paul thanking, you know, thanking God for the Galatians. He, he skips that part. Remember, like I said earlier, the commentators say this is a harsh-sounding letter. He goes right into this issue that he has. Paul even thinks to Corinthians, which they had like a bazillion and a half problems. The Corinthian church had like all these issues. As a matter of fact, we're so thankful that the Corinthian church had a million issues because that's why we get the book of Corinthians. It's really Paul's response to all the crazy issues that the church in Corinth had. The church in Corinth had a lot of issues, but he even thanks God for them. But for some reason, the book of Galatians doesn't thank God. He's like, no, okay, I got to get right to this. Here's the rebuke. Here's what I got to say to you. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I love this is kind of a personal nature to Paul's claim here. The Galatians aren't simply abandoning a concept. They're not... They haven't simply come to another conclusion on an intellectual, intellectual level. They're abetting the very person who called them. They're abetting Jesus. Because when you add more to it, you're making lighter of the work of Christ. The problem is, once again, there's an external source that's confused the Galatians about the gospel. The, these opponents are known as the Judaizers because they told the Gentile believers that coming to Christ was not enough. They told them the Galatians that needed to add certain ceremonial actions to their faith, namely circumcision. Which, I'm just going to be real with you guys, they must have been very compelling. Like, that would be like, no. 
I'm just saying, the idea of what Paul says sounds so much better than what the Judaizers are saying. I'm just throwing it out there as a guy. I would be like, yes, this is better, but they must have been very compelling in their arguments. But Paul was a Pharisee before Christ reveals himself to him. Paul understood full well what legal bondage these false teachers were putting the Galatians under. And he himself experienced deliverance from a performance-based faith. He wanted so desperately for the Galatians he wanted so desperately for the Galatians to know the freedom that he has. The idea of adding anything to the grace of Christ, of grace of Jesus was so condemned by Paul. He said, let anyone who preaches a different message be under God's curse. The Greek word for this is anathema, and the Hebrew word is harem. It's a divine ban. It refers to people or objects that have been devoted to destruction. Guys, let me tell you how seriously how seriously Paul is taking this. He's saying these people who are teaching these false things are cursed or need to be cursed. And let me tell you something, guys. Every time I preach a message that I preach to you, I, I worry that I preach the right thing. That I don't see something wrong. I, I pray to God every time I preach to you. I take very seriously the calling that God has placed upon me, the, the privilege that God's given me to speak and expound scripture to you. I take very seriously the fact that I don't want to, it's, it's, it's worse, it's better for me to have like a big heavy weight tied to my legs and tossed overboard than to teach you the wrong thing in my heart. So I'm very intentional. But I also want to throw this back at you. Yes, it's absolutely on me if I teach you something wrong. But if you believe me without checking my words against the scripture, it's on you. Do you hear me? Because I want you to challenge everything I say and make sure that it's scriptural. Make sure that's from the heart of God. Okay? Can, can you guys agree with that? Can we help each other out on that? Because if I start teaching you something wrong, I want you to call me out. And I'm like, oh, that is wrong. My bad. I need to know so that I can repent. You with me on that? We're working together on this, Okay? Jesus is the source of the gospel and the heart is grace and peace. Let nothing else be in your way. See, here's the problem. Sometimes we fall for fake substitutes because sometimes it is easier. Right? Sometimes we fall for fake substitutes or we add things because we want to feel better about ourselves. They added the ceremonial Judaism because sometimes it's easier to say, well, I can do that. I can keep the Sabbath holy or I can add this a little bit or I guess... I can get circumcised if that means I'm safe. I don't have to worry on just faith alone. Do you, are you with me? Sometimes they fall for fake stuff. Sometimes even now in our world, we can say, well, I question, I'm wondering, do I, how loved am I? am I? What's my faith level? And you can say, well, if you add something, well, I could add making a quiet time a part of my daily ritual. If I did that, then I can feel better about myself. So I'm adding my salvation dependent upon me adding a quiet time or me reading the Bible a certain amount of times a day. Mind you, once again, those are not bad things. I love those things. But if you add that to grace and say it's a requirement to become saved, then it's a wrong gospel. But it feels good at times, especially if you're an achiever. Do you hear me? Every time I go on a trip away from my family, I make sure I FaceTime my wife and my kids as much as possible. I love FaceTiming them. I want to see their faces. Uh, I, I want to tell them that I love them. I love Josiah Hudson making goofy faces at me. I love it. I, as much as possible, I want to see FaceTime. And I'm thankful for the technology, but FaceTime is nothing 
compared to getting home and seeing my boys run up to the door. I open the garage door, and I open the door, they're like, they hear, the, they hear the beep beep of the alarm go on, and they hear that, they're like, appa! And they run up to the door, and they give me a hug, and I'm like, FaceTime's got nothing on this. This is so much better. As they hug me and say, appa, and I give them a kiss, and I hold them. There's, there's nothing like feeling those arms around me. I'm like, I love FaceTime. I thank God for the technology of FaceTime. And if I was gone, yes, that's what I would love. But man, when I'm there, this is the real deal. This is what it's really about. Guys, that's the gospel of Jesus. There are fakes, there are imitations out there. Some are pretty good. And it doesn't seem bad. FaceTime is solid. What's wrong with saying that, you know, that you have to read the Bible X amount of times, you have to memorize X amount of scripture? What's wrong with saying that you better stop doing this or stop doing that if you want to become a Christian? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying that? These are good things. But when you add something man-made and man-earned that it isn't grace, it's not the real thing, and the real thing is so good. It's the work of Jesus alone. Worked out in you. It's a free gift of salvation. My people hear me very well. This is not a sermon against Christian disciplines or a sermon against living a holy lifestyle. I want you to live a holy lifestyle. But this is the beginning that will overflow to those things. The fundamental truth is that the gospel is from Jesus. He's the source. It's hard as grace and peace. And it's the only way to know the Father and have what you were made to be for. It's the real thing. Anybody, this is date me. I hate, I hate doing illustrations that date me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Does anybody remember the commercials? Can't beat the real thing. Coca-Cola. Yeah. Coca-Cola, classic. The real thing, it's so good. We did a taste test one time, Coca-Cola versus Pepsi, Coca-Cola versus RC, all that kind of stuff. I always got Coca-Cola down. Coke Zero nowadays, but back then, Coca-Cola, best stuff in the world. I know the real thing. Guys, if you know the real thing, the others just pale in comparison. Don't add to the gospel. Don't work, but you don't need to. It's beautiful. It's salvation. It's from Jesus. His heart is peace and grace, or grace and peace. And it's made for you. And it's how you know the Lord and receive fullness of blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, for loving us so much. God, for doing all that is needed to secure our relationship with you, with disobedient and sinful man. God, we thank you for the work of Jesus. It's sufficient. God, we receive your grace. God, with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue in our worship service, we want to respond. We want to live out the, the, the good news of this grace that we have received. And so we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table, where we get to participate as members of Christ's body in this family meal of what God has established for us in Christ. And so churches, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I invite you to remember that Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, that he put on flesh and blood in our place to fulfill for us all obedience to the law. 
even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross for you, for each of us. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation so that we might be accepted by God and never forsaken by him. Do you hear that? That's true of you right now. Now, we believe this is meant to be a family meal among fellow believers as a sign of the relationship we enjoy and the promise that has been given to us to have fellowship with God, that we will enjoy fellowship with him forever. We've come to have communion with this same Jesus who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us. that he is the true heavenly bread that strengthens us into eternal life. This bread represents his body, which was broken for you at the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And in the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine, the true vine, in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. This cup is the new covenant in Christ's blood. And in Christ, there is freedom. Now, this time I'd like to go ahead and invite up our servers who are going to be serving communion for us this morning. Uh, and we'll have uh, servers stationed at, in front of each, each aisle for you to come to. And we also have, have the elements uh, at, at different sections across the room as well. For those who uh, maybe don't feel comfortable or would, like to, would prefer to take communion at your seat, you, you have the option to do that as well as uh, gluten-free options for those who, who need it. And that, that is labeled as well at those tables out in the, in the sanctuary. Heavenly Father, uh, Church, you, you have been invited to the King's table through the sacrificial love of Jesus. He is the one who wipes away every tear. He's the one who removes all the bitterness from our hearts and he fills us up with his hope and peace. It's to this table that we invite you to come and eat. Whenever you're ready, we invite you to, to come and partake of this meal to, together.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you have done for us. That God, we, we spend so much of our days, so much of our times striving to, to work, to earn, to accomplish, to, to, to do well. And God, we know that in, in Christ Jesus, you have accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And so God, as we partake in this meal, God, we remember that we, we are ones who can receive the forgiveness of sins. God, that you have forgiven us in your son Jesus at the cross. And that we can live as ones who share all of his rich inheritance. God, we have a bright future because of what Christ has done. We have hope because of Jesus. You have done it for us. God, I pray that we would continue to rest in it and to feast in all the things that you've done, to, to delight in what you have accomplished for us, God. God, may we not add to the gospel, but may we delight in you and the finished work of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.